Hello and welcome to Sobriety Elevated, the podcast that is committed to empowering you in your recovery and elevating your sobriety. Join us now for the next episode. We hope you create an incredible experience. Let's get the show started. And welcome back to another episode. We're so glad you joined. This is Kevin Thole, and I'm with my partner, Jim. Yeah, and we've also got a special Hello, guest everybody. today uh, who we'll introduce in a second. I was not on the last podcast that you listened to because I was out of town still for work. So Jim did one solo. So I'm glad to be back. Um, we also tried to record another one, but had some sound issues. We had a, a special guest, so we'll be bringing that guest back here later. So stay tuned for that. Today, we have the hottest, the coolest, the best guest ever. And I'll let her introduce herself. So go ahead and please introduce yourself. I can't wait to hear how she introduces herself after that. <laughs> I don't know about the hottest or the best, but I am Rachel Thole. I'm Kevin's wife, and I'm here as a guest today. And I would say you are the best because <laughs> you have gone through all of this supporting Kevin, and that takes something. So maybe in today's episode, we could talk a little bit about what it was like to support someone as they went through recovery because it had to be a struggle. Yeah, it really was. It was definitely the hardest hardest five to six years of my life. And it takes a lot of faith to to go through that and to still have faith that there could be a good outcome or to keep praying even when it feels hopeless, just to keep hope alive when everything seems hopeless. How did you keep hope alive? And, and here's a question. Do we want to actually start? What was it like? What were the days like when he was in his addiction? It's funny. I, I had just read I had just read something that I, I didn't journal a lot because I didn't want to deal with it. But then there were some points where it was so bad that I had to deal with it. And I had to deal with my feelings. So I would write stuff down occasionally. And so in this one, I'm just going to read part of this because this is basically how it identifies like how I felt for many years, pretty much in the middle of everything. Like in 2017, I journaled that I'm at a point in my life or in my marriage where I need, I know I need help. I often feel lonely and depressed, struggling with Kevin's drinking and alcohol abuse and his anxiety. Over the last three years, it has caused a major strain in our relationship. I often feel my my love, you know, deteriorating because, because he was. And then um, at the time, you know, we had Michaela already. So it just, it was just so much stress. And I talked to my grandma a lot who her husband was an alcoholic for a long time, my grandfather, um, but he did get sober. And so she always encouraged me with prayer. You know, she encouraged me to pray. She encouraged me to read scriptures and just to have faith that he would get sober. <laughs> and I, I didn't really know how to how to deal with that except just to pray because I, I didn't really know what to do at certain points. And then came an intervention. How did the intervention feel? Because I know that a group of you sat down with him and mm. said, this is it. Enough is enough. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was like this huge relief for me almost because I, I had 
found out so many things that I was like, wow, like, wow, I, I really, I'm not crazy after all, you know, like, and, and so it felt like a relief to me to, to be able to like explain truly how I feel and to put up just a boundary for myself that I knew I needed because I was at the end of my rope. And I know he was too. Kevin, how does that feel? Because I'm I'm kind of teary-eyed over here just watching her. If you're listening, obviously, as we record, we record with a video. So you can just hear her. But you can really see the pain that's, that she had to have been going through for years. And Kevin, in retrospect, I mean, what's there? I mean, I hate it. And and the the thing is, is like... People will hear me on this podcast. They'll they'll see me speak in meetings. They'll, and I'm a really positive and optimistic guy. But this is the reality of what we do to people we love. This is it's awful. And if you're out there and you're an addict or an alcoholic and you're 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 like pushing back getting help or you're you're like you just can't surrender. I mean, you're putting people through hell. It, it, I hate hearing it, but it's important for me to hear it because it just reminds me that I'm never going back to that life. That like for me, it sounds crazy, but like a lot of people can go, you know, to dinner and have a beer. But for me, going to dinner and having one beer, it turns into a year from now or a month from now or maybe five days from now. But Rachel feels the same way that she felt then. And I don't ever want to make her or anyone feel that way ever again. And Rachel, we could tell a hundred stories that would probably a lot of people out there can relate to of the ways that I would come home drunk and throw stuff. I mean, there's some funny stories too that are funny now. They weren't funny then, by the way. We could do a comedy. We could do a comedy section on this. This is that I peed that I shouldn't have peed. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff that I did and and you know it, it's funny at first, or it's it's like every once in a while, it's it's not a big deal, and you kind of justify it. Man, it was it was every day that I, I can just I know Rachel, and I know that every day it was that fear of what's going to happen. Is he going to get drunk again? Is he going to wreck the car? Is yeah. he going to kill us? Is is what's going to happen? Is he going to kill himself? I mean, all of these different things that yeah, being an addict sucks. Like, and it's awful. And I hate, you hate yourself and you go through all these things. The stuff we put people through is even worse. And like, if we think it's my addiction is not affecting anyone, it's affecting everyone. And if you're listening to this, listen from the space of compassion. You may be in love with somebody who's an addict. You may know somebody who's an addict, or you may be an addict yourself and thinking, I don't have this kind of impact on people, but here it is in their words. Addiction hurts people, and you're hearing it. And I don't want to dwell in the misery. I don't want to have an episode that dwells in the misery because you went off to recovery. Now, when he went to recovery and when he began the healing process, Rachel, how was that for you? I want to backtrack a little bit because I think it's important like to even get to the to the point of an intervention and to some of these points, like our home life was already it was a steady decline, obviously in his addiction, but I was steadily. I was not healthy by any means, 
not probably not even 75%, but I was working harder. I was reading books. I was trying to go to a couple of meetings here and there, but it was hard because I had a daughter to take care of alone. And so I tried to work on boundaries and, you know, not letting him sleep in our bed whenever he came home that way. Or if he, if I knew he lied to me, because I would be so angry and I would lash out in my anger and I would in turn, you know, do something wrong in my anger that then it just is this vicious cycle. I guess we could get into that another time, but that's just an important part. I think of getting your loved one into recovery is by dealing with your own hurt of it and drawing the appropriate boundaries to become healthy enough to either to, to whether you live in the same household or not to be able to function in life without being so enmeshed and so engrossed in somebody's addiction. But Beautifully yeah, spoken. But then going into feelings, feelings in general, what when going through it and especially when he was gone, I mean until you're out of something, you don't realize the impact that it was having on you. Like you're living in dysfunction. You're living in total chaos. You're in survival mode. So then when, when that's finally out of your hair, whenever you can finally breathe in your own home and grieve, then you grieve it. Then you cry every day. You don't eat, you don't sleep. You, you know, it's, it's just a huge grief, I would say, process. And then, you know, anger, feeling isolated, feeling like no one understands, guilt, <laughs> shame, shame over what, you know, he did that I'm married to that, you know, like, I, there's so many different feelings that come into it. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was an intense grieving process, I would say. So Rachel, Kevin went to treatment and I know that you came out and visited him while you were doing all of this self-healing work, while you were creating the boundaries. What was it like for you when you got out and saw him after he had gone to treatment? When I went and visited him the first time? Is that? Yes. I mean, I think we were both very nervous. I was really nervous to see him. I don't know, as, as hurt and grieving as I was, I wanted to understand him. Like I wanted to know the why, because that's the only way that it would make sense to me. Cause I know, like, cause I know he had a good heart, you know, the whole time. Like that's the one thing I did get right. I, di I didn't, <laughs> I was lied to a lot. There was a lot of addiction. It was addiction, you know, and it wasn't who he was. So I wanted to, I wanted to get down to the why. And what caused this and the root issue, which is really what it takes to heal anyways. And I wanted to know that for myself. So I didn't feel like, like I was the reason or, you know, that I had any part of it. So I don't know, that was part of it. And just um, starting the process of doing marriage, some marriage therapy there. I mean, some really deep, deep stuff, <laughs> which was good. Kevin, what was that like the first time she came out to visit and you saw her and you started? Yeah, I mean, just to set it up for everybody, I put her through hell for five, six years. And the the thing she discovered was, you know, I was we we everybody that has listened to this knows if you haven't, but I was a I was a gambler, I was a drunk or an alcoholic, and I was also a drug addict. And when you're an active addict and you're doing the drugs and things that I was doing, you're doing a lot of other things. 
infidelity type things, things that are just not good. And this was all like a bomb that was dropped on Rachel. And then they have the intervention. And then five days later, I go to treatment. We have very little contact. I'm like 100% sure we're getting divorced because that's what I deserved. I mean, she would have been in every right to do that. And so when she came, I didn't really know what to expect. I was a nervous wreck. I had probably lost 15 or 20 pounds. I would took, took care of myself. I did a lot of intense, very intense work to feel you know much better. And so whenever I first saw her, I just, the whole goal was that I knew that I was, I was like, I mean, I had dried out from the alcohol and the drugs. So like I was more my authentic self. So my goal was that, to make sure that she could see that and could see my heart. Also, just like I wanted to just see what it was like to like interact. I hadn't been probably sober or substance free like ever, really. You know, I mean, if if you I mean, yeah, there was momentary sobriety times or whatever, but not truly substance free. And so I wanted her to to see that. And so I came in what I would say. Go ahead. Rachel actually wants to say something, which is probably best anyway. No, whenever you're done, I want you to go now. I, I want you to go now. Whenever. Yeah. To speak on that, like I truly had not known him at all without addiction. I just didn't know it. I came to know and marry this person that I like deceived me like from day one, from before day one. I, I had no idea what certain thing, what, what he was doing. I didn't know what was going on. So relearning who he was, like relearning that he could be somebody that wasn't manipulative or Yes, he's a good salesman, but that doesn't mean he's a manipulator in a bad way anymore. Like it was over the last couple of years, that's been the hardest part to like relearn and retrain my brain of who is he and, you know, not looking over to the side, like wondering what he's doing. And I don't because I, and I prayed for this for him to do like a complete 180. I mean, he had to change to the degree that he was going hard with his drugs and partying and gambling, which was. Oh, more than most, more than quite a few people to the degree that he was doing all those things. He needed to like, I needed him to do 110% of that into recovery. And that's exactly what he did. You know, every now and then I think, oh, well, is he just doing this for show? Or is he just doing this to manipulate? But you can't, you can't hide. You can't hide that recovery. You can't, not when you're sober, <laughs> not when you're, you know, blowing into a breathalyzer three times a day and then choosing to go to an outpatient rehab and I don't have to convince him to do anything and I don't tell him to go to meetings and I don't tell him to call a sponsor. And it's not this codependence cycle of insanity. So when did you know, Rachel, that he was turning around? He's off at recovery. You're doing your healing. He's doing his healing. I assume you, you came out to Utah a few times to see him. When did you feel the shift in your heart to where you knew that the recovery was working? Uh, I mean, honestly, not too far into it because I knew he was at death's door. Like I knew he knew that about himself. His therapist there even told me like, I've never seen someone go so hard into everything, you know, like he's really working and yeah, that's like Kevin, but at the same time, like if he didn't really want it, he wouldn't, he, I mean, he did a lot of hard stuff and we had a lot of hard, difficult talks there. And so I could tell like within the first couple of times, definitely the second time coming there, I felt more comfortable and he had really done a lot more work since the first Plus, time. Plus tell him even. how much better I look too. 
(laughs) (laughs) That too. (laughs) That too, right? Well. Yeah, I mean, when Rachel visited me, you know, both times it was it was challenging. But the second time, I was more comfortable and kind of confident in my recovery and in my sobriety. I'd done a lot of work, you know, I'd worked through a lot of the steps and done a lot of therapy. I at that point had worked with Jim and had felt a lot of relief. The fact still was like Rachel didn't have to stay. She didn't have to stay with me. And nobody, like nobody, not even my mom and dad would have been like, I can't believe she left him. Everybody would have been like, oh, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like it was like this thing that was like, oh my, a shot would have been a shock. But she chose to stay. And and I can remember whenever that kind of realization came to me that like this, there was hope here. You know, that it was it it shifted for me from like, we have a child together, like how are we gonna coexist and all that? Like I had to make sure that my recovery was for me and not just for her, not just to save my marriage or not just even not just for my daughter. I mean, those are all things that helped obviously push me along, but that's not what was gonna keep me there. I had said, like everybody's heard me say, when I went to to treatment, I said I'm gonna do whatever they tell me. And my therapist said, Okay, here's the deal. We're going to we're going to write this contract and we're going to we're going to show here's the thing. We I've said it 100 times. Honorable action over time equals trust. That's from that therapist, that same one, the same one who wrote honesty and had me put it in my wallet. That's still there today. Same guy. The fact is, is he said, all right, in the past, everything you said you were going to do, you didn't do. And you never commit everything you committed to. You fail that. So now here's what we're going to do. We're going to put it on paper. We're going to make it to where you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. And if I don't do it, then I have no excuse, you know, then, then there, then there's no excuse for me. So we, we did all of these different things, which was a way to build trust. And I've talked about a few of them, but I'll talk about them again. I went to IOP where I got drug tested three times a week. I did a breathalyzer called Soberlink three times a day. Not one time did Rachel have to be like, Hey, are you sober? Hey, wait, you seem drunk. What's going on? Because literally there was a control in place to prove it. And a lot of people will say, this was my idea, by the way. My therapist and me came up with this, not Rachel. Rachel didn't have to beg me to do it or make me do it or anything like that, because that would be the codependent cycle that we talk about. And whenever we were able to present that to Rachel and make sure she was comfortable with it, and then there were other things that she wanted to add, different therapy and things like that that we did. But the fact was, if you want, if you're out there and you want to save your marriage, if you're out there and you want to save a relationship, just like you have to be willing to go to any length to get sober, you pretty much have to be willing to do that in your relationship as well. And not all marriages are going to work out and not all relationships are going to work. And I have close relationships that have been severed completely due to my addiction. If you're out there and you're like, I want to do something, well, then you have to take action to prove to these people that you're a different person. And so I, I did that. And I'm, I'm super thankful that I did. It's like all of this stuff, if you're not like, it's funny how before if she would have been active addiction, if she would have said do a breathalyzer, been like, you're crazy. This is ridiculous. This is the dumbest thing I ever heard. But if you have nothing to hide and you're really living an authentic and honest life in recovery, all of those things are super easy. And for me now, like if somebody was like, go take a drug test, I'd love to go take a drug test because guess what? I know that I'm going to I'm going to win that little battle if they think I'm using and go take a breathalyzer. I'd love to like if a cop is behind me, I'm like, I hope he pulls me over and thinks I'm drunk. So I get to do a sobriety test. It's it's just so different. Like whenever when you're when you're doing the right things, none of this stuff is hard. So like, again, don't get ahead of yourself, but just get into if you go to treatment, do what they say. 
If you go to AA, do what they say. If you go to any of these places, these programs that work, do what they suggest to you. Find a team around you to help you and support you and watch what happens in your life. It's going to be incredible and amazing. Yep. This is the point we're going to wrap up part one. In the next episode, Rachel and Kevin are going to talk about life after recovery once he got the good back part. From so don't just listen to this one. Sorry, You've been sorry, Jim. Subver- this is the next the one's good the good part. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't just listen Go to, to all the, the next misery one that was in this one, right? Yeah. The next one is the good point. If you like what you listen to, share us with your friends. If you know somebody that is looking to get sober, share this episode with them. They and you are not alone. Look forward to seeing you in the second episode. And again, I want to remind you, in a few weeks, I'm going to be announcing the course that starts the Monday before Thanksgiving and ends the Monday after January 1st. It is a way for if you are in recovery or supporting someone in recovery, it's a way for you to stay strong during the toughest time for people in recovery, which is the holiday season. So both Rachel and Kevin, thank you for sharing so authentically. Thank you for the raw emotion. And we look forward to seeing you in part two, which is going to come out in a few days.